We return now again to the salutation of Peter's first epistle, found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, which says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The salutation, the common form of an opening of an epistle in that day, which identified, first of all, the author, the writer of the epistle, who signed his name at the beginning rather than at the end, then identifying the recipients to whom the epistle was written, and then thirdly, a greeting of some form. And you'll find all of these elements in this salutation. The epistle is written from Peter, who is an apostle of Jesus Christ and identifies himself as such. And as far as we know, the apostleship of Peter has never or was never challenged in that early day. Unlike Paul, whose apostleship was challenged and he had to defend himself and his position on more than one occasion. But Peter who was an apostle of Jesus Christ and whose authority and mission, therefore, should never be doubted. It is interesting that apostle is the only New Testament office that has the close link with Jesus Christ as part of the introduction of that office. An apostle of Jesus Christ, a phrase that is found frequently in the New Testament, But you never find an elder of Jesus Christ, a bishop of Jesus Christ, a teacher of Jesus Christ, a deacon of Jesus Christ, though in all of the cases where these are people placed in office according to biblical instructions, that would be true. But you need to understand that there is special emphasis here. An apostle of Jesus Christ, because an apostle was a unique representative of Jesus Christ, in a way that no one else was. An apostle had authority from Jesus Christ in a way that no one else did. An apostle had the very words of the Lord Jesus Christ, inspired words to speak to the churches in a way that no other New Testament office did, save the office of prophet. And therefore, when Peter tells us he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, he wants us to understand that what he is writing is the very word of God. He writes to the pilgrims who are scattered through these four Roman provinces. Five territories are named, but the last two are a a combination name, two names that describe the same Roman province. And in writing to those who are scattered in this fashion, Jews and Gentiles scattered throughout northern Turkey, north and west of the Taurus Mountains. This is a reminder to all of God's people that we are pilgrims and strangers here in this world. But in writing this way, he is also writing an encouragement to many because saints in that day, for the most part, were very persecuted, harassed, and beleaguered. In fact, I've called my sermon this morning, Three Encouragements for Beleaguered Saints. And Peter is writing to beleaguered saints. Beleaguered saints are those who are besieged, harassed, who are troubled, 
by others. And that's who Peter is writing to, those who are facing troubles, and he writes to encourage them. And even in his salutation, there is great encouragement. And a great deal of this encouragement depends upon understanding that all three persons of the triune Godhead are involved in your salvation. They are all determined to bring you safely to the goal. The Father, who exercises foreknowledge. The Spirit, who works in sanctification. The Son, whose blood has cleansed us from our sins and to whom obedience is now gladly yielded. Three persons of the Trinity, all with distinct actions upon the people of God, but all with one unified goal in mind, namely to bring every blood-bought child of God safely home to heaven. And thus, in the very wording of the salutation, we have the doctrine of the Trinity. In the New Testament, the doctrine of the Trinity was so universally understood and accepted that it did not seem to require a great deal of defense or explanation. It is just woven into the fabric of the words of the New Testament. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Three prepositional phrases that remind Peter's readers that they have a very special relationship to God. And Peter intends to strengthen their faith by reminding them that, number one, God's children were especially chosen by the Father. Number two, that God's children are powerfully transformed by the Spirit. And number three, that God's children become lovingly obedient to the Son. Chosen by the Father. Elect. A word that means persons chosen by God from a group of others who are not chosen. Chosen from a group of others who are passed by. For inclusion among God's people as recipients of great privileges. Elect according to foreknowledge. Which as we saw last Lord's Day, when used of God, means more than ability to predict future events. Of the, I think it's seven times, the word foreknowledge, either in in its various forms, is used in the New Testament. Two times it is used of men, and there it has to do with the knowledge of future events. But five times it is used of God, and there it speaks of God determining and implementing his decisions. God determining ahead of time what he is going to do, and then carrying out those decisions infallibly. In fact, foreknowledge, as used of God, is virtually synonymous with foreordination, and that's the way it's translated in 1 Peter 1.20, as we saw last week, of Jesus Christ. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. It's the same word. Foreordained. And so, elect according to the foreordination of the Father would be an accurate way to translate this which is simply to remind us again that election is not divine ratification. It is not that God saw down through the corridors of time who would believe upon him given the opportunity, and then he chose them because, of course, if he 
had to see who would choose him before he chose them, then he isn't making the choice. Man is. And God would simply be ratifying a choice that he knew man would make. That would not do justice to the words of Scripture at all. Election is not based upon advanced knowledge of man's faith. It's not foreseen faith. It is based upon God's purposes, God's determination for reasons that are entirely unknown to us, entirely within God himself. God has chosen for purposes that please him and that further his causes and goals and his reasons for doing things in the world. God has chosen his children for purposes that have nothing to do with us and have everything to do with him his love, his grace, and he carries out that choice in time. Is election, if it's not divine ratification, is it therefore human ratification? Well, yes and no. In a sense, it is. It turns out that when men and women believe in Jesus Christ, they are ratifying God's choice. But the great difference is, that God is omniscient, he knows all things, he knows the future from the beginning, and men do not. And therefore, when men and women believe on Jesus Christ, they don't have any sense that they are ratifying God's choice. They don't learn that till later. The sense of their experience is that they are now willingly and voluntarily reaching out to embrace Christ, which is true. It's only later that they find out it is the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts which changed their sinful hearts and changed their rebellious desires and made them willing, made them desirous to reach out in faith and embrace Jesus Christ. So in the case of humans, is it... Is, is it human ratification? Well, yes, it turns out to be that, but no, that's not the way it happens in time. But you see, God, knowing everything in advance, could not choose based upon foreseen faith without it being conscious ratification. And it is not ratification on the part of God. It is election. It is not God ratifying. It is God choosing. That's what the Bible teaches through and through. But I, want, I think Peter wants us to understand that this foreknowledge of God is not simply applied to election, but it's applied to everything about believers. Grammatically, it's hard to know exactly where to place this word election that is found early in the sentence. Our translation places it in such a way that it looks like Peter is saying, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, elect according to the sanctification of the Spirit, elect according to obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That is a legitimate translation, but that is not necessarily the only one. And probably what Peter intends for them to understand, these readers, is that God's foreordination caused them to be born where they were born, caused them to live where they are living, caused them to be scattered in... Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, where they are now living, causes them to be harassed and beleaguered and troubled in those very locations because they are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is all because of God's design. Cheer up, child of God. Things aren't spinning out of control. God has done this for a wise and perfect plan. It's all according to his foreordination. That's what Peter 
I think, wants us to understand. And therefore, we need to realize that the doctrine of election is revealed to comfort and strengthen and encourage God's children. That God would purpose to redeem sinful sons of Adam's race is a cause of immense wonder. Why? Why would he do that? Why not just let the whole bunch of sinful rebels go their chosen way to eternal condemnation like he allowed the fallen angels? But God has purpose to redeem sinful sons of Adam's race. That is a cause of great wonder, an evidence of God's love, and a cause for us to love him in return. Furthermore, God has acted decisively and powerfully to accomplish this purpose. He not only decided to do this in eternity past, but he is bringing to pass everything necessary to accomplish this purpose all the way to the end. He not only thought it would be a good idea to redeem sinful sons of Adam's race, but he has been acting decisively and powerfully in time to accomplish this purpose, much of which has taken place already in the sending of his son, but much more which is taking place now in the work of his Holy Spirit. Furthermore, if you come to understand that God has chosen you to be among these, that he has purpose to redeem out of Adam's rebellious and sinful race, and that he is acting decisively on your behalf to bring you to heaven and to his eternal purposes, to a glorified state that we cannot imagine, then that becomes a sense of immense wonder and praise and love. We can't understand it. Why, O Lord, have you loved me in this way? Chosen not for good in me, wakened up from wrath to flee, hidden in the Savior's side by the Spirit sanctified. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love how much I owe. And therefore the God who chose me will fulfill his purposes in me. Whatever God has purpose to do with his elect children, he will unerringly, infallibly, all-powerfully accomplish until the final goal is reached. And so the God who chose me will fulfill his purposes in me. So cheer up, beleaguered saints in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. You may be suffering trials now. But the God who has chosen you for himself will bring you safely home to glory and to all of the privileges and blessings that have been promised to those who come to Christ in faith. And dear child of God, whoever you are, whatever you're facing today, please understand that the evidence of God's love, God's electing grace in your life ought to cause you to praise Him eternally, no matter how dark the moment may be right now. It's nothing compared to what God has chosen you for and what God is doing in you now. O people selected by sovereign love through free grace elected to glory above, what cause for uniting your voices to sing? What cause for delighting in Jesus your King? What people so blessed... So honored of God, redeemed from transgression by Calvary's blood, 
your enemies vanquished, your wants all supplied by him who has promised, the Lord will provide. For he who has loved you and bought you with blood will surely bestow every covenant good. He'll ever be near you to save to the end. Then trust him and praise him, your Savior and friend. And so, number one, chosen by the Father. Number two, transformed by the Spirit. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit. To sanctify in its simplest form simply means to set apart. Set apart by the Spirit. Some, therefore, think that this refers to election, which, of course, is a setting apart. But to think that Peter is now referring to election would confuse the work of the Spirit with that of the Father. Election is ascribed to the Father. Sanctification is ascribed to the Spirit. It is better, therefore, to view this sanctification as following the election of God the Father. To view this sanctification as the means used to further the Father's loving purposes. It could certainly include the work of regeneration, which as far as our experience is concerned is when it all begins, when the Holy Spirit now comes to those who have been chosen by the Father and regenerates them to life, creates in them spiritual life, brings conviction of sin, woos them to Christ by faith. This work of the Spirit to bring the elect ones of God to faith in Jesus Christ, that indeed is the work of the Spirit, and that is a sanctifying work of the Spirit, because that is the work that in time begins to separate the chosen ones of God from the mass of humanity, and to bring them into the Father's family. But this work of regeneration surely includes more than the initial work of regeneration, this work of sanctification does. It is more than that. In sanctification, elect according to the foreknowledge of the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, this is something that is going on now. It is not past tense. And it refers, therefore, to the entire present status of Peter's readers, and therefore is referring to what we call today progressive sanctification. What is ongoing in the lives of God's people as a progressive work of God's Holy Spirit who is bringing us to likeness to Jesus Christ over time. In this way, the Holy Spirit sets apart God's chosen people by making them increasingly conscious of their new status. Their status as sons of God, the status that they become aware of when they are awakened to their danger and awakened to the power of Christ to save sinners from sin and are brought by faith to trust in Christ and now become aware that by believing in Christ they are the children of God and awakened to this new condition, made alive to spiritual realities, 
They are now, for the rest of their lives, operated on by the inward working of the Holy Spirit to make us more and more conscious of our privileged status as sons of God, to give us greater and greater desires to please the Lord, to serve the Lord, to obey the Lord, to represent the Lord Jesus Christ before the world in which we live, and thus is making us more holy day by day. Indeed, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is conforming us into the very image that is the likeness of Jesus Christ himself, which work will not be complete until we get to heaven. Peter, therefore, is telling us the same thing that Paul teaches us elsewhere, namely, that those whom the Father justifies, the Spirit sanctifies. It's impossible to have one without the other. You cannot be justified and have a clean record in heaven and assurance of eternal salvation and yet have nothing to do with the work of sanctification that is making you more and more like Christ, that makes you more and more hate your sin and hate error and hate anything that is contrary to God and His will and His holy nature. You can't have the one without the other. It's impossible. The work of salvation is a work of the triune Godhead. God the Father justifies when we believe in Jesus Christ. But God the Spirit sanctifies all those who have been justified by faith. And therefore, it is impossible to be a child of God and have no concern for your sins, no concern to please the Lord, to go on day after day, month after month, year after year, living as an unconverted person, but saved. And when you die, you will go to heaven. That is impossible according to the word of God. Those who are chosen by the Father are transformed by the Spirit. And that brings us then thirdly to obedience to the Son. Chosen by the Father, transformed by the Spirit to be made obedient to the Son. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, obedience is the goal of election. Increasing obedience until eventual perfection in the presence of God in heaven. But obedience is the goal of election. What is God doing in choosing people for himself? He's choosing people that he's going to remake. Rescued from Adam's marred image, he's now going to remake them into the image of his son, Fallen sons created by God in the beginning are now going to be rescued from Adam's fall and are going to be fashioned into sons of God. The goal of election is to make us into willing, obedient, joyful sons of the Heavenly Father. That's what His purpose was in eternity past, to choose a people that He would bring to this very goal. That's why the work of the Spirit must bring God's children to obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, obedience is the evidence of election. 
I have three quotations here, and please listen to them. The first is by Paul Rees. He says, and I quote, The sign and proof of being among the elect is not an empty prating of how secure we are once we have believed, but rather how sensitive we are to the principle and practice of obedience to the Savior we have trusted. Did you hear that? Shall I read it again? The sign and proof of being among the elect is not an empty prating of how secure we are once we have believed, but rather how sensitive we are to the principle and practice of obedience to the Savior we have trusted. And the shorter one by F.C. Cook, quote, Obedience is the first act as well as the present characteristic of true faith. Obedience is the first act as well as the present characteristic of true faith. When you have saving faith, it expresses itself initially in obedience and it continues to express itself in obedience. That's the ongoing characteristic of true saving faith. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, that faith must be characterized by obedience to Christ. And finally, this quote by Peter Davids. Quote, conversion is more than an intellectual believing that something is true. It is repentance, a turning from a past way of life, a commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord that results in a way of life characterized by obedience. That's why earlier I read the passage in 1 Thessalonians where Paul talked about the Thessalonian Christians being the elect of God. But how did he know they were elect? Had God the Father sent an angel down to Paul and said, Paul, let me give you a list of the elect in Thessalonica. Here they are. Here's their names. No, Paul didn't know who the elect are any more than we know who the elect are in that way. Only God knows who the elect are in that way. So how did Paul know who the elect are? Well, he tells us. Did you hear it as I read it earlier? Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance. In other words, they were the elect of God, is indicated by the fact that the Holy Spirit came and did something powerful within them, so that they gladly embraced the word of God. They believed it, and they began to act upon it. That's a mark of their election. Verse 6, And you became followers of us and of the Lord having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. They showed a desire to be exemplary Christians. They used the Apostle Paul as a model of what a Christian life should be like. And using him as a model, and he, of course, is not a perfect model, that helped them to, to follow more perfectly the, the one true model, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And they did that in spite of persecution and affliction. It wasn't easy for them to do this in the city in which they lived, in the day in which they lived. But they did that. Why? Because they are the elect of God and because therefore the Holy Spirit is powerfully working within them. How do we know they're God's elect? Because we see these evidences in their lives. Verse 7, So you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. They became exemplary Christians before others. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has, God has gone out 
so that we need not say anything. They became bold proclaimers of the gospel, bold witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ. What is that? Evidence of God's electing grace working in their lives. To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus Christ, who delivers us from the wrath to come. They're looking for the return of Jesus Christ with eagerness and longing. And expectation is an evidence that they are the elect of God. Because the Holy Spirit has worked these desires, these, these thoughts, these characteristics within them. How do you know who the elect are when you see these evidences of the Holy Spirit at work? The Father who elects, the Son who transforms brings us into obedience, or the Spirit, rather, who transforms, brings us into obedience to the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that child's song? Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Doing exactly what the Lord commands, doing it immediately. Action is the key, do it immediately. Joy you will receive. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. One minor correction. It might be better to say obedience is the only way to show that you believe. How do you show your faith without your works? James says you can't. There's only one way to do it, by your works, by your obedience. Obedience is the only way to show that you believe. And if you are truly believing, you will obey. Not perfectly. Not perfectly. In fact, the more the Holy Spirit works within you, the more you'll be conscious of your failures and imperfections, and that will bother you very much. Not perfectly. But, detectably, noticeably, significantly, and increasingly obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. So obedience is the evidence of election. And furthermore, obedience is a divine human cooperation by the design of God. He draws us into this aspect of the work of salvation. At this point, human cooperation is not only permitted, it is required. We must obey. We must obey. The very word obedience that Peter has chosen here has the idea of listening and submitting. Listening to the word of God and submitting to that word. We must obey. This reverses our former rebellion. Before we were brought to faith in Christ, what was our posture? It was going our own way, doing our own thing, serving ourselves, Rebelling against God, disregarding His Word, rejecting His authority over our lives. What changes when we are brought by the Spirit of God to repentance and faith? What changes is we now have a willing obedience to the Lord. We now have a desire to submit to Him. We now listen to His Word and humbly submit ourselves to it. And so we must obey. We must act out our profession that Jesus is Lord. 
And no man can call Jesus Lord except by the Spirit of God, Paul tells us. And that's exactly what Peter is telling us here. Elect by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, unto obedience to the Son. It is the work of the Spirit in our lives that enables us to call Jesus Lord. Not, of course, in the sense of empty words. Anybody can say empty words. Anybody can sing with gusto, He is Lord, He is Lord, He is risen from the dead, and He is Lord. But it's only the work of the Spirit of God that can cause us to truly make Him Lord. To submit to Him as Lord. To follow Him as Lord. But we must obey. It must be a willingness on our part. It must be a conscious decision on our part but also realizing that he must enable us to obey, not only initially, but all throughout our life. It takes the ongoing work of the indwelling Holy Spirit for us to obey. We must learn how to obey by our apprehension of truth, and that's our responsibility, to hear the word of God so that we might know what it is that God wants us to obey. Peter puts it this way in in Peter, 1 Peter 1.22, Since you have purified your souls by obeying the truth, Since you have purified your souls by obeying the truth, we must learn the truth. We must hear the truth. We must acquire the truth. And we must obey it. We must submit ourselves to it. But, of course, it's the Holy Spirit that must illuminate God's Word for us to understand it. We can't truly understand it apart from being taught by the Spirit of God. It's a human, divine cooperation that's going on here, you see. We must deal with our failures. We must confess our sins. That's our part. That's our responsibility, to confess our sins as we commit them. But, of course, we're dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God to show them to us, to remind us of them, to show us what they are, so that we might confess our sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we realize that the cleansing that takes place, this ongoing cleansing along the way, is all because the Son has provided for that cleansing with the sprinkling of his blood. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. primary object of our faith is who? The Son. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit, but what is all this doing within us? It's causing us to believe on the Son. It's causing us to become followers of the Son. It's causing us to, to... want to be obedient to the Son. We keep Jesus Christ, the Son of God, before us in all of this. And as we submit to Him and follow Him and obey Him, these things are being worked out in our lives. He is the primary object of our faith as New Covenant believers. Old Covenant believers didn't have the revelation of God the Son that we have. And so the object of their faith may have been more God the Father than the Son. But as New Covenant believers, the object of our faith primarily is God the Son. 
And the primary focus of our obedience is God the Son because He is the one who paid the price of our redemption. He's the one who sprinkled His blood in order that we might be saved. And our obedience is dependent upon continual cleansing secured by the blood of Christ. Sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. What does that refer to? It undoubtedly is based upon an Old Testament picture. Not surprisingly, Peter, having been born a Jew and reared a Jew and knew the Old Testament scriptures, and when he began to preach, as on the day of Pentecost, his text was from the Hebrew scriptures, so it wouldn't be surprising that this allusion, the sprinkling of the blood, would have to do with Old Testament revelation, The question is exactly what? There are at least three different times in the Old Testament where you have reference to the sprinkling of blood. The first one is in Exodus 25, or 24 rather, verses 5 through 8. Moses has gathered the children of Israel together and he's going to inaugurate the covenant. The one we would now call the old covenant because there is now another one, a new one. So we have a new one. But in their day, this was the covenant that God was inaugurating with them. And we read in Exodus 24, 5, Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrifices, peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people. And said, this is the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. They were sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice, and that inaugurated them into the covenant, the old covenant. Is Peter therefore referring to believers in Jesus Christ's inauguration into the new covenant by the sprinkling of Christ's blood? Possibly. There's a second reference to sprinkling of blood in Exodus 29, and it has to do with the ordination into the Aaronic priesthood. We read this in Exodus 29:21, And you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and on the garments of his sons with him, and he and his garments shall be hallowed and his sons and his sons' garments with him ordaining Aaron and his priests, his sons into the priesthood by the sprinkling of blood in the Old Covenant. Is there a New Testament parallel? Well, notice what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.5. And you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In the New Covenant... We are made kings and priests unto God. This could be a reference to the sprinkling of blood which ordained the priests in the Old Testament. It's the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ that ordains believers priests. We don't need any priest but the one that's in heaven, the high priest, Jesus Christ, our great high priest, because we are priests according to the word of God by the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. There is, however, a third reference to the sprinkling of blood, and that one is in Leviticus 14, and it has to do with the purification of lepers. 
Leviticus 14.6, As for the living bird, he shall take the cedar wood and the scarlet scarlet and the hyssop and dip them and the living bird and the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed from the leprosy and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird loose in the open field. A sprinkling of blood to pronounce a cleansed leper clean. Purification for a leper. It seems that this third one best fits the context of what Peter is talking about. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. This seems to be what is going on presently in our lives. The sprinkling of the blood that inaugurated us into the new covenant took place at the cross of Christ. And for us, personally, we experienced it when we first believed on Christ. Ordination as priests doesn't seem to figure into this passage by Peter, though it's possible that he has that in mind. But more likely, this is what he has in mind. As lepers were sprinkled by the blood and their cleansing was acknowledged, So believers in Jesus Christ who sin along the way need only go back to that fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins where sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. We have this God-given desire, this Holy Spirit desire to love the Lord, to serve the Lord, to please the Lord, to obey the Lord, but we sin. What do we do when we sin? Go back for another sprinkling and be cleansed. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Go back for another sprinkling and have the defilement of that sinful leprosy removed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sprinkling of that blood. And thus our obedience to Christ is not marred by unforgiven sin as we make our way through this earthly sojourn, but obedience where failings are freshly cleansed by the blood of Christ. What a wonderful obedience this is. We're conscious that our obedience is far short of what it ought to be. But Christ has made provision so that we can be freshly sprinkled as we confess our sins and our obedience, therefore, is unmarred as we make our way home to heaven. And so what do we learn from all of this? Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, I think two lessons primarily. The first one is to be encouraged. Peter is encouraging the saints of his day. Be encouraged. You are discouraged. Many times more discouraged by your own sinful failures than anything else. But be encouraged. God is not finished with me yet, said somebody. That's a good way to put it. God is working on me. He's not finished with me yet. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Be encouraged, blood-bought child of God. Keep your eye upon the Lord. Keep your eye upon the goal. 
Take no account of the difficulties that surround you in this world. Recognize that you are in the all-powerful hand of an almighty God who has chosen you in Christ before the foundation of the world and has already given his Son that you might have life and has already sent his Spirit to create that life within you and to bring you into union and bring you into obedience with Jesus Christ. He's not going to let you go now. Be encouraged. Dear saint of God. But secondly, be diligent. As Peter puts it in 2 Peter 1.10, make your calling and election sure. These truths allow no room for pride, but rather humility. And they allow no room for carelessness, but rather only for carefulness. In a proper understanding of the Bible, there's a wonderful balance There is, on the one hand, absolute certainty regarding all God's elect children. They shall all be saved infallibly. They shall all make it home. Not one of them shall be lost. But there is no absolute certainty apart from an obedient walk. Why? Because the only way I can know for sure that I am one of God's elect is if I see that ongoing work of God's Spirit within me. If that's absent, then how can I be sure that I am one of the elect of God? You see, Arminianism promotes holiness by erroneously teaching the possibility of a true child of God losing his salvation by sinning, by willfully sinning. Kind of holds that over the head. Yes, you may be a child of God now, but watch out, be careful. If you sin, you may lose it. Maybe various reasons for that, and some of them may even be God-honoring, but they are mistaken. But on the other hand, what I will call decisional regenerationism promotes security by erroneously tying security to a one-time human decision. How many times have you heard an evangelist say something like this? Now, if you have ever once in your life prayed this prayer, if you have ever once in your life made this decision, you don't need to do it again. You are eternally saved. Don't you worry about it. You're secure. I make this invitation for those who have never done this before. That kind of language, that kind of emphasis, what does that produce? Carelessness. But biblical Christianity promotes both holiness and security by pointing to the finished work of Christ alone as the way of salvation and the fruit of the Holy Spirit's inward work as the evidence of divine election. Are you troubled? Unsure? Go to Christ. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Are you puffed up in pride and carnal security and sinning and stumbling and it does not seem to bother you? Uh Uh-oh, where's the evidence of your true faith? Where's the evidence of true repentance? Where's the evidence of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit? Where's the evidence of your election? You better humble yourself and examine yourself to see if you be in the faith. And so Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace 
be multiplied. Shall we pray? What great salvation. What great truths. What wonderful promises, O Lord, you have given us. And now, O Lord, don't let us be careless or complacent regarding these truths. Don't let us accept them intellectually without evidence of regenerating work of your Spirit within our hearts. Don't let us, Lord, be callous and indifferent and hard-hearted, cold to things eternal, living carnally in security. O Lord, dash such false security from us and bring us into sweet communion and daily fellowship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as followers of Him, enabled to do so by Your Spirit, we pray. Amen.